0: Hello and welcome to the Oxford University Science Podcast. My name is Marcus de Sotoy and I'm Professor of Mathematics and the Simoni Professor for the Public Understanding of Science here at the University of Oxford. In each podcast we're going to be taking a look at some of the big science stories making the news here in Oxford and around the world. And I'll let my other hosts introduce themselves in the Science Pod.
1: Um, So I'm Pedro Ferreira. I'm a cosmologist here in the Astrophysics Department at Oxford.
2: I'm Irene Tracy, Uh, I'm a neuroscientist here in Oxford, interested in using brain imaging uh, primarily to look at pain mechanisms and how you perceive pain.
3: And I'm Chris Lintott, I'm a researcher here in astrophysics and in my other life I'm co-presenter of the BBC's Sky at Night programme.
2: Uh, today we're going to be looking
0: at one of the big challenges in the 21st century, um, which is understanding a little bit about how the brain works. And in particular, I think one of the ways you can look at how the brain works is to see when it doesn't function properly. Mm-hmm. And one of those characteristics is synesthesia. Mm-hmm. And uh, Irene, I think uh, you could tell us a little bit about sure. what synesthesia is. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So it comes from a, a Greek word, syn, meaning the union or the togetherness, and aethis uh, meaning the perception of the senses. So it's the union of different senses, so people will be aware that we have all the primary senses of taste, smell, vision, touch and pain, which is my own particular area of research, falls into sort of one of those slightly unusual separate senses. And what synesthesia is, is when people experience a slightly bizarre thing, and that is that they perceive two senses together. Uh, And it's quite an unusual phenomenon that really up until about 30 years ago, people dismissed as not very interesting scientifically, and they didn't actually really believe it, they just thought people made it up. Because if somebody says to you that, well, a particular sound evokes a certain taste, how do you really know that's true? And they're not just sort of lying to you in order to sound glamorous and different. And it wasn't really until 20 or 30 years ago, people started to do very careful experiments uh, and they showed that actually this phenomenon was true and that led to further experiments and then when we had the capacity to actually look inside the brain with some of these brain imaging tools as well as some other techniques, we were able to really confirm for the first time that truly people were experiencing two sensations simultaneously when Whoa. only one sensation was was basically evoking the stimulus. So if I just explain that a little more clearly, we, we have this concept of an inducer. The most common one uh, would be looking at say black and white text. So a letter or a number would, as the inducer, evoke a simultaneous visual experience of colour. So you will see that particular letter C as red. And people who are synesthetics have very strong associations as to what numbers are associated with what colours. It's very, very reproducible. It's very robust for their whole life. Um, they remember the same the colour The same association. Always. It might not be consistent across the population, but for that particular individual, then they'll, they'll very strongly experience a particular colour to a certain but, inducer. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that when you, when you look at a number, you see that number in
1: colour? Does your vision... Become Become coloured. Yeah,
2: so so it's a good it's a good question. Um it's a it's a spectrum of things. Most people will describe it that actually it's not a specific colour associated just directly with that letter as opposed to any others, although it can be that. It's more that there's a general awareness and feeling of colour across everything. So Tuesday might be a yellow day. It's not that everything you see is vibrant yellow, but there's this general sense that there's yellowness about the day for you. Uh, and so that would be one. And what's unusual about these inducers and sort of the concurrent Feeling is that it's unidirectional, so you can't take a colour and evoke seeing the letter C. It's only in one direction that this phenomenon works.
0: And uh, are there other mixing of senses? Of course, I mean, yeah, the, absolutely. The other... most the
2: most common one, you know, are these sort of letters and numbers evoking a sensation of colour. Colour seems to be the most dominant concurrent uh, sense that's mixed up with these others. More rarely, you'll get some unusual ones. So there's a classic uh, musician who goes by the initials ES, and much research has been done on this particular female, uh, where she will, in response to specific musical notes, and particular intervals, so a tone or a semitone or the presence of a major or a minor chord, she will have a a taste, a gustatory reaction to that. So, for instance, a minor might be a bitter taste, another major chord might be a sweet taste. And again, people thought, this just can't be true, you know, because it's very easy, you could... I could say to you, yes, I hear a major chord and I, I taste chocolate. Uh, how would you know that really I am? And I'm not just saying that. Some very Is sophisticated. How, yeah, how well, actually they've, they've actually. You can do some sort this. of what we call implicit experiments where you can start to get people to do cognitive tasks where you're trying to distract them uh, with tastes uh, while simultaneously giving them, for instance, these tonal colours. And you can show that, unaware to them, they implicitly start to have a better performance in discriminating things, which they're not aware of. But it means that compared to controls who don't have this, definitely that simultaneous integration of the tone with the taste was giving them an advantage and that they were better able to perform the task. And that sort of makes the link which has been very commonly observed with synesthetics and that's this link to autism, uh, which is where people can use that sort of powerful multimodal combination where certain things like the inducers evoke a certain sensation. You can use that to a competitive advantage. It actually gets you something, as shown with these behavioural experiments.
3: One thing that intrigues me is how much... This is linked to memory mm-hmm. because as I try and imagine what it is to to have this this condition or, or to see the world in this way the closest I can get is to remember my final exams, Mm -hmm. or everything always comes Mm -hmm. back to your final exams. And I remember sitting there desperately trying to remember pieces of physics and hearing the music that I'd listened to when I'd revised. It's a revision tool waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. Is that a sensible way of thinking about this? Is it a memory of a colour that's being certainly
2: memories associated, and and the recent uh, results that have just been published over the past couple of weeks, uh, which looks at the genetics of synesthetics, um, the location of where they've think they found the gene that uh, again is a very strong phenomenon that runs in families so it was assumed that there was a genetic link it's now been honed in to particular areas and these areas have a link to what we know are maybe the genetic basis for autism so that sort of confirms this observation that a lot of autistic people have these synesthetic capabilities and they use them for cognitive enhancements if you like in that they can as you say, use that as a as a memory aid or a trick enable for them to enable sort of you know number yeah, numerical, I mean, numerical association.
0: Classic examples is this guy David. That's Tannett, right. That's right.
2: Who can remember pi to something like twenty two thousand? Yeah, and I think uh, he's synesthetic with number. So They're he's correct.
0: seeing colours and he's oh. seeing sort of shapes. Yep. I and mean, he talks about. Thirty-seven being yep. a very lumpy that's number, right. but when you multiply by three, which is kind of a round number, yep. you get one hundred and eleven. Yep. And so he sees that those connections between numbers, yep. and and he says it's the synesthesia, which is, he says is helping him to do that's that. That's exactly right. It's so really that
2: that's a, a beautiful illustration of exactly how you know not only does he have that synesthetic experience, but he uses it very sort of implicitly you know it's effortless for him as he says it's sort of like language for us is very easy for him he sees numbers and and sort of connections between numbers in the way that one would see language and the association of words so it's just intuitive for him to be able to do this it's just as a phenomenal capacity for me to think you could remember you know from a memory performance you just couldn't you wouldn't have that capability so there has to be something else to it so I think in your case it's not so much synesthetic; it's more you're using tricks that associate and and I suppose it's
0: connections in the brain, uh, and, and so what is what is going on in the brain when these? I mean, is it similar areas yeah, that so are got connections that are, you know the unsynesthetic amongst us yeah. don't have? Right. Like?
2: So there's there's two main theories to sort of explain what's going on. So the first observation is that this phenomenon of unidirectionality, and. Again, when brain imaging became available to us, so we could actually non-invasively look at the human brain as it works, which has really only been around for, say, 15 years, of course, synesthesia was a great topic to look at. So a bit like sort of do schizophrenics actually hear voices when they hear voices, is it actually activating the parts of the brain that we call the auditory cortex, which is responsible for hearing. And sure enough, those sorts of experiments confirm that. So people took that concept to They're right, let's put synesthetics in, and again, use an inducer that we know will reliably produce that synesthetic concurrent experience. And for instance, if it is a word or a number eliciting a colour sensation, do they actually activate the visual areas of the brain? And what they showed was something a little bit interesting. So the sort of core, basic, primal visual area wasn't, in fact, uh, the region that was active, but it was what we call the sort of higher visual association areas. So we have an area of the brain called V1, primary area V1, which is where just basic vision sort of comes in from the eyeballs, if you like. And then those signals get passed on to other areas of the brain where, you know, the sort of contrast, association movement as opposed to static, all the sort of higher order processing of really seeing, as I see this room here in you, as a full visual experience. Um, it is those higher order areas which is where the synesthetics will evoke an activation. So that was unexpected and again more work has been done that sort of confirms that idea. So the next question was, well how different is that to just having these people imagine seeing a colour? Because, again, it goes back to the early days where people didn't believe it was a true phenomenon. So if you actually put people in and say, well, just imagine to this colour, you're not a synesthetic and you're imagining seeing this, would you activate these areas? And the jury's still out as to how that works, but certainly imagery and the capacity to imagine things, whether it's a movement, whether it's a visual thing, we know you can activate those parts of the brain. And it seems that synesthetics genuinely activate areas that are related to imagery and the imagination of these different senses, but they seem to evoke them more strongly so there's clearly it's not just about the imagination because as i no. say with these more subtle tasks you can show that they can actually perform better so they can use it uh, whereas controls you just imagine it can't
0: and how many people are saying it's synesthetic? Um, well portions? the numbers
2: range from sort of you know one in two thousand up to one in twenty five thousand i mean it's not really known i think now that the gene and the location of the area has been localized again it, one it generates interest so people will start to do more work on it and so more careful sort of epidemiological studies will be done but the prevalence is really reasonably high and it's very high in young children children and, and again this goes back to your question about the mechanism and what's going on uh, and that is that when you're very young you have a lot of what we call the different unimodal areas of the brain that's jobs are to do motor, vision, taste, touch, whatever. They're all interconnected because you have an awful lot of excess neurons and synaptic connections and then the brain at an early developmental age undergoes a massive pruning and you just basically get rid of all the stuff you're not using and you just shut down connections so often young children will describe a very strong sort of almost synesthetic-like reactions, and certainly it's very prevalent in in young children. But as you develop into an adult, this pruning occurs, and then you have the separation, anatomically, of the senses. But it seems synesthetics don't necessarily undergo such maybe massive pruning, so it, it could be that their architecture is actually still wired up. Um, And so you actually have a physical wiring up, if you like, between these different regions that allows this directionality. So how would this relate then to
0: it being a genetic
2: characteristic? Well, again, part of uh, the area that's been uh, determined not only has this link to memory areas, autism, but also um, important genes that we know are part of natural brain development. So it, again, strongly applies, again, with autism, that there's a developmental disorder, that there's something going on about the way the brain normally would wire itself up that isn't normal in this case and and they're left with a sort of architecture that's a little bit different we have now uh, very new techniques again that we do in our imaging lab where you can actually non-invasively um, look at the diffusion of water in the brain and when you look at the, how water diffuses in the, what we call the sort of white matter bundles if you like the sort of motorway system between different areas that do jobs so sort of literally wires in your brain that are insulated the the water is what we call anisotropically, you know contained it can only move in one direction that's up and down the tract, as opposed to water outside these tracks that tumble anywhere. So we can collect the data in a certain way where we can look at that what we call anisotropy and get a measure of the actual white matter connections in the human brain. And, of course, that, again, was a perfect application for synesthetics. And, indeed, an experiment's just been published last year where they took people with synesthesia into the scanner. They did this particular type of imaging sequence where you're looking at the white matter connections with the hypothesis that, you know, these people have this leftover architecture, that these regions are truly... So you've got different,
0: different roads. Exactly, yeah. you've got different
2: roads. And so mm. when you have this, you know, visual input of a, of a number and it activates that part of the brain, it immediately goes and communicates to the vision and sets off this, this colour sensation. Now that's a very yeah, popular, their GPS in their
0: brain is much better than indeed, that, right? yeah, all of right. us, exactly. so you have to go the, the way that everyone else is going. Yeah,
2: or, yeah that's yeah. right. So, so now, now the sort of counter argument to that is that um, that's a structural thing, which seems it's nice and easy. It seems very uh, it's very attractive because it it makes sense. It, it explains what possibly is going on developmentally and the link with the genes and an abnormality and that. Um, and obviously, there's you know certain amount of evidence to support it with this diffusion uh, tractography imaging. Against that are people who take psychoactive drugs, like mescaline, and they can actually have a synesthetic experience. So there's a counter-argument that there's actually it's nothing to do with the structural brain and this sort of leftover poor wiring, uh, or maybe advantageous wiring, it needn't be that it's uh, a disadvantage to have synesthesia, uh, and that it's actually uh, more complicated than that.
1: You here. mentioned that um, you know you don't have to consider it as a disadvantage, but... Can people with synesthesia have problems?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, in terms of, again, going back to children where it's more prevalent uh, and it not being recognised and um, quite often people won't be aware until, you know, they're an adult that actually this thing that they just thought was a normal part of what everybody did or felt or experienced, they suddenly realise isn't and people don't really see, you know, the colour <laughs> red when they're looking at the letter C and Tuesdays aren't always yellow. Um that they realise that they have this particular property. And then they can go back and think, well, this is probably why when I was young and I was learning to read or, or you know, with my schoolwork, I was actually struggling maybe a little bit more than others because um, it can affect, obviously, your capacity, certainly, you know, in terms of reading material. So I think that's sort of, again, part of the politicization of trying to understand it scientifically, is to say, you know, now that we, we understand it, it's true there's a genetic region, there's maybe structural areas, um, it's, a, it's a clear behavioral observation that we can be sure exists, we should probably go back now and start to really do the proper work to work out, you know, what are the real numbers, what is the impact of having it, should we be diagnosing it earlier, what should we be doing in terms of Helping children at school who maybe are struggling for reasons that are put down to bad behaviour or or developmentally poor, but actually it's because they're they're visually uh, struggling. Because as I say, the vision is is one of the ones that's most common. As the concurrent one is this visual
3: colour. Do we know why vision is particularly linked to this? We've talked a lot about seeing things yeah, and colours rather that's right. than yeah, I hearing think, or right. Yeah, else. I mean
2: it again. It could go back to to be honest. I don't really have a a good answer for you that that's uh, that's definitive. Um, the observation is that it is colour. Very more rarely you'll have these other associations of you know uh, smelling things or tasting things an association maybe to tones seeing shapes you know so a certain shape might elicit again a taste so it could be a, a, a three-dimensional sort of uh, yeah, I know Yeah, well.
0: uh, when he has a cube in his mind, just it's a minty taste. Mm. It's very mm. extraordinary. Thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh,
2: Maybe it's, you should study. Uh, uh, exactly. <laughs> no, that's not exactly. me. But, uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, are there any famous um, synesthetics I mean, is it, does it produce great works of well, art? Well, it's,
2: it's, it's sort of thought of that you know, e, e, you know great creativity um, and again this sort of cognitive enhancement you know produces some. I mean, and again because of the, sort of the fact that it's not been sort of classified and people haven't necessarily known they've been synesthetic we don't really know. So you know, one could postulate that some of the great musicians of the past or some of the great artists presumably must have been, you know. But there is
1: there's this trend now to go back and look at these, you know, great thinkers and mm, mm. pin them down as a I, yeah. I I read a yes. book recently about Dirac, who mm. was one of the greats mm. in 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 quantum theory. And now there's this, this thesis that he was he was autistic. Right. And and you yeah. go through and he was you know he was an unbearable guy, the way that he dealt with yep. people. And you can pin it down to autism. Now yeah. was he autistic, I don't know. Yeah. But could one do the same thing with synesthesia? Are there traits that you can go look in hindsight? And, and yeah,
2: I guess you know if if uh, again it would be a question of what sort of. Um historical information would you know have is catalogued if you go back to say art would maybe is, is the clear one where sort of you know the capacity to represent particularly abstract art that those physical shapes in my mind for the artist clearly evokes very passionate feelings and sensations of anger or disgust or whatever and that and that has been very stronger that's what they want to trigger in no, the I mean, viewer do, they I want think... you to see that and have that sense now hmm. sometimes i look at abstract art i'm not a synesthetic and it You know, sometimes it's quite nice and it does evoke some emotion. Sometimes it just does nothing for me. Um, And one does wonder, you know, maybe for them it was a cube was evoking a wonderful sensation of taste that uh, of, of a mint that evoked a wonderful moment in their time when you know they had some particular nice
0: <laughs> i think david Hockney talks about the some of the sets that he created yeah. um for uh the the music mm-hmm. actually yeah and elicited lots of shapes and colors which is right. what he represented in the actual that's
3: set, right yeah but for this to work if your artist is going to create this experience in all of us we have to share a synesthetic language mm-hmm. so our, yes oh, that takes us back up i uh, is there agreement? Are Tuesdays yellow for the ma- majority of it's the centrists? It's three aesthetics? always blue. Exactly, three always
2: blue. There's, I mean, there's, there are patterns. That appear to be uh, reasonably consistent, and then there's deviation. So for sure, it clusters, and that makes sense biologically with the way a lot of things work in the body. In that, you know, there'll be a particular thing that will be abnormal, you know, so uh, or, or just different, uh, a particular variation of a gene, and then you'll get a spectrum that'll produce, if you like, different flavors of that in terms of the, what we call the phenotype, the sort of manifestation of that behaviourally. There'll be clusters where people will clump and all have very similar ones, and then there'll be deviation. So it's just sort of like a, a distribution Distribution. Um, and so for the synesthetics, again, you know, there is wor- work and research where they're sort of clustering what are the common inducers that produce the common, you know, so in terms of these letters, again, there's sort of consensus on which ones seem to most commonly trigger the particular colours, and then you'll have people who will deviate from that. Um,
3: so it would be fun to look at works of art and see where be, they yeah. correspond to that and, and where they you know maybe you get the feeling of alienation. Yeah. From places and I think I think the, the rest fact, of
2: I think the fact that you know <laughs> imagery can evoke the same activity in the regions that the synesthetics activate uh, means that maybe you've got the capacity when we learn more about it for the artist to say you know I really felt or I tasted or I heard these amazing things when I visually looked at that um you know who knows what capacity we've got to sort of train people you know the brain is a very plastic organ you know we can we can make it rewire and that's work that you know one does in the lab all the time for the benefit of say patients post-stroke you could help it rewire and take over a function that it's lost so you know who knows what capacity we've got to become synesthetic ourselves if only we understood it better and knew actually how these triggers worked and how they actually truly activated those structures we might be able to experience things. What's the weirdest synesthetic connection you've ever come across? Oh my goodness Um, uh, I do think that this um, unusual one of this musician who has this taste very very strong and very wide spectrum of tastes uh, in response to specific musical uh, tonal intervals so it's not just a particular note it's the mm. tonal interview is is i think that's very intriguing because that's really quite a bizarre change of sensations you know if you take the letters that evoke a color you're still in the sort of visual domain if you like mm. um when you're sort of really crossing quite divergent things sort of auditory input communicating to something that's taste related
1: is there anything um, involving touch either as an inducer or, a, or as an end
2: um not uh, in terms of sort of weird and wonderful ones. You, you can have them, but they're not very common. So yeah. So in terms of again, uh, I'm sure there are some unusual ones out there on the internet <laughs> where people will report that they have unusual perceptions to certain amounts. We of want to sensory hear about input. <laughs> but yeah, maybe people could uh, write in on that one. <laughs> well, I, <think laughs> I won't publicise them.
0: <laughs> I think it'll be interesting to hear what. Um people think the colour of this podcast is, or exactly. perhaps the taste has been um, uh, But moving on from looking inside the brain, we're going to look into the outer reaches of the universe. And Chris, you've just uh, been involved in a really interesting project called Galaxy Zoo. In fact, Galaxy Zoo 2, because it's a follow-on. Perhaps you could tell us about uh, what you've been doing.
3: Well, Galaxy Zoo, it was a, well, it was supposed to be a side project, and it took over my life when we launched Galaxy Zoo 1 back in July 2007. And essentially it was um, a solution to a problem that's plaguing astronomers, which is that we almost have too much data, or at least too much data to behave as we used to. So in the old days, you were lucky if you had good images of, say, 30 galaxies, and you'd take them to a professor like... Pe- well, not Pedro, because he's a cosmologist, but somebody who studied galaxies, and you would, you'd you genuflect before the professor present your galaxies, and they'd be classified. You know This is a type SA2 spiral, so you take that away, and this is an E3 elliptical, and all these detailed classifications, basically on the shape of the galaxy. Um, the shape encodes all sorts of other information that maybe we can get to in a second. Then, as we started to do big surveys of the sky in the late 60s, 70s, you now have thousands of galaxies, and you can't keep the attention of a professor for that long, as I'm sure people (laughs) around the table know.
0: Um, (laughs) And that's been made possible because we've got just better telescopes looking out there, uh, lots more of
3: them. Absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking we're up to the stage of things like the Palomar Sky Survey, which was big photographic plates on the back of a, a telescope adapted to act basically as a camera that slowly steps across the sky. So you have thousands of galaxies you need to classify, can't get a professor to do it, you get a PhD student to do it. And you, somebody's thesis is going through and saying, yes, here's a here's an e naught galaxy, here's an SA3 or whatever. But modern sky surveys, like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, where our data comes from, has images of millions, well, one million galaxies. That was the target for the Sloan. Um, even a PhD student won't look at a million galaxies. Uh, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> we tried. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. the answer is about 50,000 before they tell you what you can do with the rest of your galaxies. <laughs> and... So astronomers revert to, to treating them as statistical objects. So you can look at the colours, you can look at the shapes, you, or the, bo- the sizes of these things with a computer. You don't treat them as individuals anymore, they're just data points. Except that it turns out to still be useful to look at them. them, If you look at them, you find the weird and the wonderful. You're able to put your finger on them and say, yes, this is odd, therefore this is interesting. And also, the human eye is still better due to the kind of higher order processing we Mm -hmm. were talking about for the first half of the podcast. Um, It's still useful to actually classify by eye. So to solve that, we put them on the web, and in a very long-winded way, that's where Galaxy Zoo came from. We needed to recruit people to sort through a million galaxies.
0: Well, I must say, I, I did enlist my son to, to do some searching on Galaxy One, so we did look at it. And, and what do you have to do? I mean, you, you get these images um, as a user, what, what, do you, what are you hoping to get from
3: them? All we're asking for is essentially pattern recognition. So you look at the image of a galaxy and you classify it according to its shape. So in, in Zoo One, we thought we'd ask the simplest useful question. So we asked, is this a spiral galaxy? Uh, does it have the beautiful spiral arms we associate with images of the Milky Way that you see in films or in the press or whatever? Or is it a ball of stars we call an elliptical? Two categories of galaxy, let's sort this million into those two types. Um, the results turned out to be fantastic. We had almost 200,000 people take part. So to give you an idea, we've got more users than there are people in Sunderland um, or me- <laughs> members of the Italian army, if you prefer that. Um, we we're considering invading italy um <laughs> But when you take the the wisdom, the collective wisdom of these people, their results turn out to be as good as, if not better, than those from professional astronomers, just because if you have lots of people working on a problem, you make fewer mistakes. So with Galaxy Zoo 2, we've taken the quarter of a million brightest and best galaxies from that sample, and we're asking more detailed questions. Essentially, this is the definitive guide to these galaxies. If they have spiral arms, how many do they have? Uh, how tightly coiled are they? That tells you about the black hole at the centre of the galaxy. Uh, there's a bulge of old stars at the centre of most galaxies. How big is that bulge and how obvious is it? If it's an elliptical galaxy, well, tell us what shape it is. You know, we can really take time, because we have so many enthusiastic volunteers, we can really take time to, to appreciate them.
2: And do, do you give them tools so that they can actually do that sort of analysis? And, and you know, are you working out the distance of the central ball? Or it, it's
3: just it? an image and a series of buttons. So all we're asking our users to do, and the most useful first step, is just pattern recognition. Right. So look at the image so just, and tell us and about the shapes.
2: Count, the, and, OK.
3: Yeah, just yeah. T- here's an image, look at the shapes, and, and then on to the next galaxy.
1: You were quite confident that their results were better than the results from professional astronomers. Why,
3: Well, we checked. Uh, That's the simple answer. So, well, the the two reasons. First of all, you check. You take the small samples from the eminent professors and the the poor, benighted PhD students. You you can do a comparison. And we agree with the professionals to within the scatter Mm -hmm. of the professional data. So the first thing is people can do this. But why I said better was suddenly we've got extra information. If I take my million galaxies to one PhD student and he or she sorts through them, all I have is his opinion. If something odd comes out of the data, then I'm perfectly at liberty as a rival astronomer or as a journal editor to to turn around and say, well, actually, you just can't classify galaxies. Suddenly, we get beyond that because we've had 50 to 100 people look at each Mm -hmm. galaxy. So now I can say, here are spiral galaxies, and these are the ones we're absolutely confident about because 50 out of 50 people said, yes, Mm -hmm. these are spirals. Here's a larger set of galaxies, which are probably spiral, but you know, 80% of people agreed mm-hmm. on these. So you have this extra mm-hmm. information, um, which turns out to be very useful. It mm-hmm. means you can tune what you do for specific projects. If you want only a small number, you can focus in and, and be very confident, or you can deal with mm-hmm. probability for the first mm-hmm.
1: time. Yeah. But is there is there information that a professional astronomer has which would make them make better choices with regards to a galaxy well, than someone a, who just looks at it as, as a picture and yeah. answers a direct question? You see, this
3: is something... That, This actually turns out to be the hardest thing to convince some of our our users about because we give them access once they've classified to the rest of the data we have, to the colour, to the size, to everything the computer, what we call the pipeline, um, that comes off the robotic telescope that processes the data, gives you. But the time to do that is afterwards. You make your visual classification first and then you can say, okay, let's look at the colours of spiral galaxies. Let me give you an example. So everyone knows, in the classic way that no one knows, but everyone believes, you know, everyone knows that spiral galaxies are blue. In, in astronomy, in the optical, where you see blue, you're looking at young stars. You're looking at stars that were born maybe only hundreds of millions of years ago, <laughs> So which is young to us, right? Because young blue stars are massive, they, they burn through their fuel very quickly. So they're, they're like a tracer of star formation. And in spiral galaxies, you see them in the spiral arms, so that's a major site of star formation in the universe. Except that when you look in particular environments, if you ask people first, is this galaxy a spiral, then you look at the colour, you find there's a large population of red spiral galaxies. And these red spiral galaxies inhabit a special place in the universe. Um, They tend to live and hang out on the outskirts of galaxy clusters. Um, So what we think's happened to these galaxies is they've had their fuel for star formation ripped away, but very gently. We knew this happened because we see spirals being disrupted, a process called strangulation is the technical term, where you remove the fuel for star formation. Mm-hmm. But it's happening so gently that the spiral arms can be preserved. Mm-hmm. These things have been in the data. If you look back over 20 years of papers and 10 years of papers using the Sloan survey, you see papers written about the distribution of spiral galaxies, and you see distribution, uh, papers written about the distribution of red galaxies. Mm-hmm. But until you separate those two things, the computer does the colours, the humans do the, the morphology, the shape, you don't understand what's going on. So that's the power of this approach.
1: So you've, you've added in this layer now, which is all these people analysing the data. Has anyone studied that interaction, sociologically or psychologically? Is there anything interesting there?
3: Well, we need a team of anthropologists, I think. Um, but it's been great fun, that's the first thing. Firstly, because we suddenly have to, We treat them as collaborators. Um, what we talk about what we're doing in terms of citizen science... Um, so this isn't an outreach project, this isn't um, us going to schools or going mm-hmm. to societies and telling them what we're doing. This is we, people being involved as a direct participant in mm-hmm. our science. So that means that we've had to teach people interesting things. We, we've ended up explaining some detailed statistics. We ended up explaining to people that it takes time to write a paper. Hmm. You know, if you discover an unusual object, we may still be sitting here a year later, mm-hmm. desperately trying to scramble to pull together. So it's really helping people to understand the process of science. Yes, yeah. and how, it wo- how it actually works, and it's even better than that. For a small number of our users, I mean, it feels similar. we've had about 200,000 people take part in the site. Um, About ten thousand of those have found their way onto our forum, which is where people discuss objects they found. Mm -hmm. But some of those, probably a hundred or so, have started leading research projects. So there's an amazing example of this is is a set of objects called the Galaxy Zoo peas, Um, and these were pointed out by somebody because they're small. it, It was an object. It's small, round, and green. So of course it's a pea. Whether it looks green to anyone, (laughs) we could discuss later. (laughs) And then there's there's three pages on the forum of puns about peas, things like give peas a chance and so on. But then people find gradually find more of these, and then they start wondering what they are, and they ask us, and we say, oh well, it's a small galaxy. It's probably not important. And then they find more, Mm -hmm. and they come back to us and say, actually, really, what it's a small galaxy. We'll worry about it later. And suddenly, to, I can't quite give you the punchline yet, but we're ne- there are two separate teams of astronomers around the world scrambling to follow up on these things. Right. It appears to be a new class of active star-forming galaxies And galaxy. genuinely right.
0: came out of these uh, amateurs who have logged onto this yeah. thing. And of, perseverance.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Or, or, or maybe a different a different example. There are sm- As well as the distant galaxies, you get a lot of nearby irregular galaxies, the, the faint fuzz of the universe that you only really see mm-hmm. locally. And we're interested in the large-scale structure formation, so we care about how things like the Milky Way formed. Mm -hmm. So as people classified, they found these irregulars and they collected them again on the forum and and they said, okay, what should we do with these? And we said, oh, they're irregulars, throw them out. You know, they're they're kind of beautiful, but ignore them. This wasn't acceptable to our users because they're they're galaxies, so people get attached. It's interesting, people get attached to different parts of the project. And so we have a team, I have a teleconference on Saturday with a team of people from Puerto Rico to Manchester and all points in between who are leading the study of the irregular galaxies. They're doing what an undergraduate doing a fourth-year project would do here in Oxford. Take all the data, plot it, here's right. a set of galaxies, where do they live, um, what sort of stars are in them, and that paper will go forward, and I don't think there'll be a scientist in the first six or seven authors. Right. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic, um, fantastic. yes. So how know? do they
2: organise themselves? I mean, how do they actually start to decide who's going to do what aspect of the analysis I mean does it just, you know, as you say anthropologically it would be quite interesting to yeah. see how that gets organised it, 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 it. It's
3: disturbingly self-organised yeah. I yeah. feel, at some days I feel like maybe we've created this this slight like, monster and mm. we're going to put ourselves out of a job yeah. because we now have, <laughs> it, it, the power of the internet is that this yeah. data is yeah. freely available we're yeah. seeing the public engage with it mm. that directly but it's in, people have different skills mm. so the Regulus project, there's a guy called Richard Proctor who's not a scientist but a practical computer scientist, so He's doing a lot of that work, and mm-hmm. there are people who have experience in technical reading, mm-hmm. not necessarily scientists, so they're doing a literature search, because yep. all, all of the astronomical papers are freely yep. online yep. as well. I mean, we're, we're helping a little, mm-hmm. but, but mm-hmm. not by much. And it's interesting, it, it, it comes to one of the important parts of this is how people engage with science. So we have this model where you, you do sci- everyone does science till they're 16 and probably hates it, and then we get rid of most of them. And then people do science until they're 18 and get rid of most of them. And then people do a university degree in science. And then at the end of that, the survivors get a stamp that says, yes, you're a scientist. Mm. And then suddenly the four of us are allowed to say things that are called science Mm. with a capital S. Whereas actually we we seem to have stumbled on a model where people, whether they're just classifying galaxies, they're contributing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whether they're reading on the forum Mm -hmm. and and on the blogs that we put up, they're also contributing to science. And, And as you learn you contribute at each point, and you're mm-hmm. doing science, yeah. whatever that means, yeah. as you yeah. go along. Are I think that's a lot important. are examples yeah. of this. I mean, yeah.
0: Irene, do you that's have right. examples in your area? Yeah, well, I mean, there's
2: there's sort of, uh, actually not for my own area, my husband's Miles Allen, who runs this climateprediction.net. So again, it's the same sort of concept. People are running multi-models of computer weather forecasting, that's right, basically yeah. for sort of long-range weather forecasting, mm-hmm. so for climate change. And again, the engagement, uh, you know, of people from all over the world, uh, wanting to sort of participate, and then Getting the bug and realizing this is great, you know, and yeah. we really, you know, they've got a vested interest in the outcome and the answer, and they want to learn more and, and get involved. So, I mean, again, that's another example like that within our own community um, in terms of doing sort of trying to um, have databases of what we understand in terms of brain imaging and and where and what different bits of the brain are doing. Um, That so far hasn't been sort of sent out into the public. It's been at least organised within the neuroimaging community worldwide um, so that we can slightly better standardise what we're doing. I think the next step then will be to take some of the data out into the wider public to get them to start to do some analyses. Certainly within medicine it's been used a lot for you know chemical compound synthesis for you know chemotherapy or whatever things but within the neuroimaging as well that's right that sort of thing there's there's, 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 there are several examples of that Uh, but within the sort of neuroimaging and brain imaging I think we're still too young a science to actually know what we're doing (laughs) what the data is to be giving uh, it out there to be honest I think that's the But but
1: you've got this machine now Chris right where you can get army I think this this, you know this and What other uses outside galaxies have you thought of? Well, it's it's
3: funny you should ask that, Pedro. (laughs) I mean, we have. We're now 225,000 people or so Mm -hmm. after the the publicity and the launch of ZooTube. We still need more people, by the way. I'm just going to talk to the listeners for a second. Uh, (laughs) We we need more people to to come and classify because it turns out the accuracy of what we're doing is directly related to the number of people who even spend a little amount of time on the site. So so if you haven't done, go to galaxyzoo.org and uh, come and join in. But Pedro, where are we going with this? <laughs> is to use the incredible enthusiasm and abilities of our classifiers as a general resource. Mm. So we're lucky. We, we sort of got there first, at least in terms of image mm. processing, and we got the publicity, and we now have this amazing database of skilled and, and hardworking and interested and engaged uh, zooites is the word that they use. Um, so we can point this not quite wherever we like, but to a wide range of projects. So, for example, we're planning to work with NASA, uh, who are launching a new probe to orbit the Moon, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, it's called. Um, And LRO has an interesting history. It's funded not as a science mission, but as an exploration mission. It's supposed to point NASA to the places where man will next land on the Moon. That's Mm -hmm. what it's there for. And It's going to map most of the Moon's surface to a resolution of about 10 to 20 centimetres. So think Google Earth on a good day, or Google Mm -hmm. Earth in the middle of London. Um, So there are scientists involved, they're going to be doing some targeted observations, but they don't have enough manpower to look at the data flood Mm -hmm. that's going to come down from LRO. Mm -hmm. So that's going to go on the web, and our users Mm -hmm. will look for the unusual, will classify craters, will step across the lunar surface and write the guidebook to go with NASA's maps. Mm -hmm. Still kind of astronomy, but you you can imagine, particularly in ecology, this is a, yes. a similar yeah. problem. As I described at the beginning, you know, in the old days, put camera in bird's nest, yeah. get a PhD student yeah. to, watch to watch the watch camera. Them. And that's a paper. Yeah. You know, probably yeah. several papers and yeah. a thesis. But, but cameras are now cheap. Right? Webcams are amazingly cheap, so why not put a camera in 10,000 birds' nests? And if only there were people who would look at cute animals on the internet, we'd be sorted.
0: Essentially, because in my own area, mathematics, there's yeah. a, a project uh, of sharing um, the workload across mm-hmm. many mm-hmm. users, which mm-hmm. is to look for big prime numbers. Ah. And it, In the past, it used to be the supercomputers, the craze, yeah. mm-hmm. which yeah. would um, yeah, uh, actually find these. Yeah. But now, they, the, you can download a piece of software, it's called the Great Internet Merzim Prime Search,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and you just get your laptop or your desktop computer when it's not doing anything idle. It just churns away. Mm -hmm. um, Doing this little program, looking for these big primes. In fact, there's big money to be won. Right. Uh, we just broke the ten million digit mark. You know, we we know there are infinitely many primes. So yeah. There are primes as big as you want. These yeah. indivisible numbers, but um, uh, we d- we don't know how to find them. That's right. the big problem. Right. And uh, somebody with their just computer running this program broke the ten million digit mark and won a prize of a hundred thousand dollars. In fact, there are bigger. Yeah. You know, every time yeah. you find one of these, there's a three thousand dollar
2: prize. Why do you want to find them, Marcus?
0: Um, well, it's a good
2: point <laughs> actually. You no,
0: know, it, that, it's a, that's a good question because um, in some sense, uh, mathematicians. are not so interested in finding. We know there are infinitely many of them. What yeah. we want to understand is is the patterns behind these oh, numbers. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, but still, it's it, it's uh, it's good evidence of how mm. little we understand these numbers that yeah. we can't find. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I can give you a, a hundred digit, that million digit um, square number, mm. but a prime number we can't find. Right. But, Do you have prizes in the Galaxy Zoo? Can you win money? No, absolutely
3: not. We certainly don't. Well, there are a couple of interesting stories. One of which is that we hand all these ideas for prizes and. And you know, if you see the ten million, if you're the ten millionth classification, you win something astronomical. And we <laughs> haven't ha- we haven't had to. People are yeah, motivated yeah. by yeah. participating in science, yeah. and we've just completed a survey of twenty thousand of our, our users. So I don't have the full results from that, but one of the motivations that keeps coming up is I wanted to do something useful. Mm. So it, it for, for us at least, the motivation is to use their own talents and brains and the pattern mm. recognition mm. Uh, abilities that are in all of us to mm. contribute to something. Mm. I think I'd try and draw a very fine line between the projects, the climate prediction and yeah. the, the mm-hmm. Mersenne Prime search that you talked about, which is using people's computers mm. with what we're doing, which is using... People. Engaging okay. people Absolutely. directly. Yeah. so they're bringing um, their skill set. So be. I think both yeah. are useful, yeah. and there are other examples of doing that. We were inspired by a project called Stardust at Home, which Stardust was a spacecraft that threw, flew through the tail of a comet. I think it's built to, picked up dust, brought it back to Earth, our mm-hmm. first ever sample of a comet. But there are a few researchers who wanted something more spectacular. They worked out that within the millions of dust grains that Stardust brought back, there should be about 10 that came from beyond our solar system. You can't pull out millions and test them all in the lab. You have to find the unusual ones. Mm. To do that, you scan through and look. And there were something like 20,000 people who devoted their leisure hours to looking at dust mm-hmm. grains on the internet. As long as it's useful, I think yeah. you can attract an audience without um. having to bribe people.
1: There is kind of a history in, in astronomy of citizen science, right, which are the amateur astronomers. Mm. Yeah. People who yeah. go out and actually right. make useful yep. measurements of a... The yeah, stars and the cosmos, yeah. and uh... yes. but also
2: in, as you say, in nature, and sort of bird in watching, nature. and oh, people, exactly. people have, yes. you know, some of the triggers of people recognising that things are changing in terms of the season, whatever, come from observing bird and, and sort of animal behaviour. So the 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 great amateur, you're right. I mean, I think in Britain, you know, because of this sort of way we. Inhibit people from doing science if they don't want to become career scientists. Uh, you know, it, it's a wrong philosophy in that you know they then sort of become disillusioned that they can't be scientists. and yes. I think to evoke it back in them a sense that they can contribute and they can actually do things. And the huge advantage, of course, is that you know when you're stuck in, as we are, as professional scientists, you very much get stuck in the traditional frameworks of this is the accepted dogma. Yes, and I used um, to think irregular galaxies were exactly, boring. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly right. That. And those peas and uh, and the red spirals. But you know, people can without that baggage, if you like. can look at it fresh and bring something from the left field a little bit, which I think is very healthy.
1: Are most of your users in the UK?
3: Um, I haven't looked at the statistics recently. Off the top of my head, it's about a third UK, because that's where we've done most of the publicity, Mm -hmm. Um, a third US and a third elsewhere. There's a beautiful little statistic I can't can't resist throwing in, which is that European users do this primarily in the middle of the afternoon. So it's people coming (laughs) back from lunch and skiving off at their desks. I remember when we launched it, uh, on the Today programme, we had huge numbers of civil servants right. emailing in. But you can you can draw whatever <laughs> conclusion you like from that. But Americans wait till they get home. Yeah. Right. So the peak right. in American traffic happens after 7pm. Right. Right. So right. I don't know what that says about the countries or the working practices, yes. Yes. but There's it's interesting <laughs> nonetheless. It's we well, expect. hopefully
0: we've inspired some of our listeners yeah. to join in and they have to go to galaxyzoo.org a... Okay, and we'll look forward to hearing some exciting galaxies discovered by Oxford uh, podcast science listeners. And finally, a roundup of some of the other big science stories making the news. The Oxfordshire Science Festival launched on the 28th of February and runs for two weeks, including an Oxford Roadshow, um, including myself going off to my old school here in Oxfordshire, Gillett's uh, Comprehensive School. Uh, where I learnt my passion for mathematics and I'm going back to give a talk uh, to explain some things about symmetry and I think Chris, you're doing something for the Roadshow as well.
3: Yes, we're doing, well we did this last year, we'll see how it goes. We're getting um, school kids to tell us how old the universe is using spiral galaxies from Galaxy Zoo. So, we'll report back. Excellent, you can have 60 minutes of sex as
0: well as part of the Oxfordshire Science Festival and a dinosaur walk, so lots of science happening here in Oxfordshire and also in the news we have something I think Irene from you Yeah,
2: I've picked up on something which is done by actually a a friend and a colleague of mine Dr Emily Holmes uh, from the psychiatry department here in Oxford who works on uh, patients who have post-traumatic stress disorder and have terrible traumatic flashbacks so uh, really invasive images come in reminding them of the terrible traumatic event they've just experienced and obviously what you want to do is prevent those flashbacks and what Emily's been working on is trying to use imagery to replace those bad images with good images one way they've shown uh, in a paper published in PLOS ONE, uh, that they can do this is to get people quite soon after they've experienced uh, that traumatic event to play about six hours of the game Tetris, which many of the people out there listening to us uh, might well have played themselves. And it turns out that the sort of uh, cognitive and uh, spatial imagery that you have to use uh, whilst playing that game is very effective in, in effect, overriding some of those uh, negative memories uh, and um, significantly helping people uh, with their disorder. So I thought that would be uh, something quite interesting uh, to discuss, and uh, people might want to look that up.
0: Well, hopefully people won't have been too traumatised listening to the Oxford Science podcast (laughs) and won't feel the need to go and uh, play Tetris. But thank you very much for listening, and we'll welcome you back to our next podcast. Thank you.